Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. This week, we're looking at growing tensions between Russia and the West, amid warnings that Vladimir Putin could be preparing for military action against Ukraine. In recent weeks, American, EU and Ukrainian leaders have been increasingly explicit in their warnings about the dangers of renewed Russian aggression. The current tensions have their origins in the conflict of 2014 and 2015, when Russia illegally annexed Crimea, which is part of Ukraine, and supplied military support to pro-Russian separatists in the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine. A ceasefire was agreed through the Minsk Accords, and talks between Russia, France, Germany and Ukraine have continued through the so-called Normandy format. But tensions have been rising again in recent weeks, as Russia has massed troops along its border with Ukraine. My guest this week is Kadri Liek, an Estonian academic and journalist based at the European Council on Foreign Relations in Berlin. So, how serious is the threat of war? This week, NATO foreign ministers met in Latvia, a NATO member which borders Russia. At a press conference, Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary-General of NATO, addressed the situation in Ukraine and tried to sound firm and resolved. The situation in and around Ukraine remains fluid and unpredictable. There is no certainty about Russia's intentions. Uh, we uh, see a significant and unusual concentration of forces, which is uh, unjustified and unexplained, and accompanied uh, by heightened rhetoric and disinformation. And we know that Russia has used force before against Ukraine and other neighbors. Today, ministers discussed the situation. We stand united uh, in our aim to deter Russia from any further aggressive actions. We call on Russia to be transparent, de-escalate and reduce tensions. Any future Russian aggression against Ukraine would come at a high price. A few weeks earlier, Antony Blinken, the US Secretary of State, had made it clear that America is concerned about the possibility of war. We don't have clarity into uh, Moscow's intentions. But we do know its playbook. Uh, and our concern is that Russia may make the serious mistake of attempting to rehash what it undertook back in 2014, when it amassed forces along the border, crossed into sovereign Ukrainian territory, uh, and did so claiming falsely that it was provoked. Russia's long complained that it's NATO and America that's the aggressor in this situation, pointing, for example, to joint military exercises between Ukrainian and NATO forces. Last April, in a State of the Nation address, President Putin warned the West not to cross Russia's red lines. I hope no one will cross Russia's red line. 
But in each case, we are the ones who will decide where the red line is. Organizers of any provocation threatening our security will regret it, like they haven't regretted anything for a long time. But why are tensions building now? That was the question I started with when I spoke to Kadri Liuk. Well, the reason is obvious. It is driven by Russia's troop movements around Ukraine's borders. And I think what stands behind them is still signaling. Russia is trying to tell us that when they say that they want control over Ukraine, they mean it one way or other either by implementing Minsk agreements that Ukraine signed at gunpoint and that essentially make one region of Ukraine Russia's Trojan horse within Ukrainian political system, or if Minsk agreements are unimplementable by Ukraine, then Russia would be happy to conclude an agreement with the West, meaning it wants the West to declare NATO enlargement impossible for Ukraine. Some people seem to think that Russia might actually, if it doesn't get what it wants, invade. I've heard different viewpoints expressed among, you know, Americans, Europeans. How seriously do you take the prospect of actual war? I do not exclude it, because it seems to me that President Putin really is serious about his aims in Ukraine. At the same time, of course, it needs to be said that Overall, the domestic political situation is not conducive for going to war. It is evident that Russia's population is interested in social welfare and things like that. They are not keen to have a war with Ukraine. The Kremlin should know it because they conduct opinion polls and focus groups and they are quite tuned to listening to their population. Likewise, I think it would be a huge strain to an aging political system and everyone is actually tired in the establishment and the need for some sort of change is palpable. And I think a war would be a huge stress to that. So there are things that disincentivize going to war, definitely. But that said, it cannot be completely excluded, seeing also how Moscow seems to be walking away from the negotiation process on the Normandy format and Minsk agreements. So just tell us a little bit about why Russia feels that the Minsk agreements, which eventually froze the conflict that began when they annexed Crimea and destabilized eastern Ukraine, do they have a point when they say that they haven't been implemented? Yes, they have a point. Ukraine is not passing the sort of legislation uh, Minsk agreements foresee. But of course, Russia is not delivering on its part either. And my feeling is that Minsk agreements might be unimplementable. What is it in the Minsk agreements that Ukraine isn't doing, but that, as you say, might be impossible? Well, Ukraine, for instance, they are not passing the sort of legislation that is foreseen, essentially federalizing the country and delegating rights to regions that would give them a veto right, for instance, over future geopolitical choices. This legislation is not passing through Ukrainian parliament and it is questionable how hard any of the presidents have been pushing it. So I think the reason here is that the sort of control that Moscow wants to have over Ukraine is actually not 
possible. I mean, it was possible for the former Soviet Union, but had to invest lots of resources into maintaining control in Eastern Europe or over Finland, if we talk about Finlandization. And I don't think that is simply possible in today's world or using more lightweight measures. But Moscow does not seem to have reached that conclusion. And I think also in its understanding of Ukraine, I would actually distinguish between Vladimir Putin and the rest of uh, Russian establishment. Because I'm not sure that Putin's passion about Ukraine is very widely shared by everyone else. My experience rather is that the wider establishment has understood that Moscow's notion of Ukraine didn't correspond to reality. I mean, 2014 offered ample evidence of that, seeing how rebellion didn't take off in eastern Ukraine. You mentioned why the domestic situation in Russia might make Putin pause before deploying the troops that are now ringing Ukraine. But might he look at the international situation and think that now is quite a good time? After all, the US has signaled it's pulling back with the Afghan withdrawal. Biden has made it clear that he's focused above all on China. And even that is quite difficult because of the coronavirus pandemic, the continuing crisis in democracy in the United States. So might they feel, well, look, America's not going to respond if we attack, and neither is Europe. Well, I think they are probably right to assume that militarily neither the US nor Europe will go and help Ukraine. Military aid, yes, but boots on the ground, hardly. But that has always been the case. So that is not the new variable. Otherwise, though, I think Putin also values the relationship he has with Joe Biden. Biden really has gained some respect in Russia by picking his fights wisely and by prioritizing his agenda with Russia wisely. Instead of lecturing to Russia about democracy and human rights, he has chosen to discuss strategic stability and cyber issues. And that is really something where some progress is possible. And in Moscow, that is very well respected. And now invasion of Ukraine would actually wreck all of that relationship and bring about new sanctions and you name it. So I don't think Moscow necessarily wants that. I think they would much more like to maybe gain some sort of agreement with Biden. Let's see, you need to contain China. You don't need that trouble in Ukraine. So let's agree that Ukraine will not gain NATO membership ever. But that, of course, would be something that would be next to impossible for the United States to agree with. Mm. Although in a funny way, it seems to me a slightly artificial argument, because my understanding is that Ukraine is a very, very long way from ever gaining NATO membership, even if the US and the Europeans don't want to rule it out forever. Well, that is true. But You are talking to someone whose country was very far away from ever gaining NATO membership and Estonia gained it. So I think that for as long as door is open formally, it is always possible with some lucky turn of events to open it in practice because, you know, things will change. If Putin leaves power, if Ukraine reforms, it will be easy for them to tell Westerners that 
see, we qualify, you should accept us. And I'm sure there will be people who will be supporting that claim. So I think unless NATO really redefines its mission and says that this is our membership, we are not going to expand, our door is not open to any qualifying democracy, I think that option might remain theoretical for a long time, but it will always be there. Although it strikes me talking to you, there's something paradoxical about the Russian insistence on this because one of their major talking points is that you promised us that NATO expansion would never take place after the end of the Cold War, and it did. So why would they take seriously a promise that Ukraine would never join NATO? I mean, as you say, things change. Well, I think they would want it signed and sealed, unlike the former promise of NATO non-enlargement. Because I think I've tried to ask several people about that too. And my understanding is that many people told Moscow that there were no plans to expand NATO beyond the borders of former East Germany. And they didn't lie. They didn't deceive Moscow. That really was the case when these questions were discussed with Gorbachev. I have asked Gorbachev himself and he confirmed it. But it was never concluded as a formal agreement. And yes, later things changed. And what do you think of the current situation in the EU? Because we talked about how the Russians will be viewing Biden, but obviously the EU itself is in flux. Angela Merkel is going and Macron is up for re-election. Brexit is continuing to disrupt European unity. Do they think Europe is so divided that it won't take any action over Ukraine? I think so. Yes, they think Europe is divided. They are not sure what will become of Europe in general. They are not sure if European Union will be there to stay. But that has been the case already for quite some years, ever since the Brexit vote. So that is also not a recent development that Russia postpones engagement with Europe because it doesn't know to what extent Europe is a reliable partner. Russia clearly would love to discuss also the fate of Ukraine more with the United States than with Europe. And I think the current signaling might also be an invitation to the United States to start discussing this matter, because earlier it's been France and Germany, Moscow's partners in the Normandy format. And France and Germany have always taken the view that Ukraine is a victim. And as Moscow sees it, forgiven far too much to Ukraine because of that. So now, yes, Moscow takes the United States more seriously as a security actor and dismisses Europe. But as that has been the case for a while, I don't think the war would necessarily follow from that. And I don't think that Merkel's departure or Macron's re-election will play any role in those sorts of deliberations. And what about thinking in the West? I mean, is there a school of thought that says, well, maybe the Russians have a point that we should give them some of what they want? I know that is always denounced as appeasement, but there are articles that you can point to in influential journals in the US. Macron himself was for a while pursuing a rapprochement with Russia. Do you think that those voices may grow more powerful? I would say there is more unity in Europe than one would necessarily assume. I think analytically Europe is on the same page. None of us here thinks any longer that Russia is 
going to be a like-minded partner or, you know, all these expectations we had in the 1990s. But no one has a good idea as to what to do with Russia that is as it is. And here, yes, we, we have different schools. I mean, there are Baltic states and Poland. I would also add Sweden to that camp that still think that the West has leverage to influence Russia's behavior in major ways, using sanctions, using dialogue or restricting dialogue, trying to bring Russia to correspond to rules and norms. And then there are other countries that think that this is impossible and we should deal with Russia as it is. And I guess, yeah, France and maybe Italy are the flag bearers of that camp. And then there is the German theory that wants to still have always contacts, have dialogue on small matters, but oftentimes they still expect that something bigger could grow out from something small. If you foster trust, then that can lead somewhere. That is very German experience, of course, but that approach has worked for them in the past, like criticizing Russia has worked for the Baltic states. So it's also different historical experiences that are fighting it out, which makes it an interesting debate, but I'm not sure that we have come to sort of common uh, policy recommendations yet. But, you know, Ukraine is not ours to deliver. And I think there is a thing called society in Ukraine. And that is something that Europe probably sees better than Moscow. Putin has a blind spot for societies in Russia and even more so in Ukraine. And I think Russians really do not understand properly the limits that pressure of society puts on Ukraine's politicians. It's a paradoxical situation in a way because Russia and Ukraine, they are two countries that are organized in completely opposite ways. Russia is a top-down country. Ukraine is a bottom-up country with very weak political elites, but very strong society that the elites always fear. And that makes it really hard for the two of them to negotiate or to actually see the constraints and the room for maneuver that the other one has. And what about the president of Ukraine, Zelensky? I mean, he was literally a comedian before he became president. How is he shaping up? Do you think he's adequate to the very dangerous situation he faces? He's in dire straits. His popularity is fading. He's, in a way, symptom of the problem I just described, that Ukraine has strong society and weak political elites. And that, of course, makes nothing easier in these negotiations. That said, all these Russian paranoias that Zelensky might try to attempt to take Donbass by force, I don't think Greece have any grounds at all. I assume that he's much more realistic than that. And there surely are people who advise him against that. And obviously, the main focus of Western concern about Russia at the moment is this situation in Ukraine for very understandable reasons. But there's a lot else going on. And do you think Russia has other weapons that it can deploy to put pressure on the West and is in fact deploying? I'm thinking in particularly of concerns about gas supplies from Russia amid rising energy prices, and also the situation with Belarus, where some see Russia's hand behind this refugee crisis, where refugees have been 
coming to Belarus and then trying to get into Poland? Yes, I think we are maybe connecting slightly too many dots when we see it all as one chain of events. I think Belarus is Lukashenko's undertaking, which Moscow clearly tolerates and maybe even enjoys. They are seeing Lukashenko angering the West, trolling on our affairs. But I don't think that this was somehow inspired or or masterminded by Moscow. And the gas crisis also, it has multiple reasons. Surging demand, outpacing of coal, Germany giving up nuclear. So it's not something that Russia has done to us. Mm. And finally, you've written that viewed from Moscow, the world in a way is not just a threatening place, but also a very confusing place because of this emerging multipolar world. What did you mean by that? Well, I have been fascinating to follow foreign policy debate in Russia, and I I think it has been largely unnoticed in, in the West to what extent Russia actually is adapting to a world where Western hegemony is not there any longer the way it used to be. And it's a sort of be careful what you wish for case for them. They have been asking for multipolar world. Now they see that the true multipolar world is actually very chaotic and it's hard to set goals there. And so they are experimenting, yes, with new ways of policymaking, sometimes driven by the Kremlin, but at other times also driven by other forces in Russian political landscape that includes lots of policy entrepreneurs. These are people who initiate something on their own and then expect to be rewarded by the Kremlin. Evgeny Prigozhin, who has become famous by owning his troll factories and now also the Wagner military company, he might be viewed as one of them, or at least he was. Maybe now he's more influential than that. Or say there was a Russian-inspired coup attempt in Montenegro that probably wasn't devised in the Kremlin. And also much of what we classify as interference, which is actually just news coverage by Russia Today or, or Sputnik, that does not necessarily always reflect Kremlin's fresh thinking or fresh planning. I would say that on the media landscape, if you want to know what the Kremlin is planning, it is best to look at Russia's domestic news, because there you can see what the Kremlin is preparing. But overall, they are trying to build up leverage to be used as and when needed. Another strand is actually focusing on self-isolation. I think that discussion peaked around a year ago, influential analysts saying that just try to focus on domestic affairs, don't do anything abroad because any effort becomes a liability. Another question, of course, is to what extent that informs Russia's true policymaking or to what extent any of this even reaches Vladimir Putin, who is the sole decision maker on everything important. But I try to follow it and I find it fascinating because it really tries to move away from the Western centrism of the past 30 years or longer. That was Kadri Liak of the European Council on Foreign Relations, ending this edition of the Rachman Review. Thanks for joining me. I hope you'll be able to join me again next week when it's possible the Rachman Review 
will not be put out on its normal day Thursday, but be delayed for a couple of days because of a special interview that we're working on.